Good evening to all of you, and welcome to the fifth and the final lecture in the IPS SR Northern Lecture Series. Uh, for, because it's a full house today and we couldn't accommodate everyone here, there are quite a number of people in another hall watching by CCTV. So to those of you who are there, please uh, feel free to ask any questions later on. And clearly, you're not second-class citizens. You were just later than other people. Uh, for all my long-suffering friends who had no choice but to attend uh, many of these lectures, and particularly my family, you can rest after this because there will be no more of me. And we will find later on who, tonight, we'll find later on who's the next victim. Oh, I mean fellow of the SR Northern series. So let me, let me begin. And it will be on a somewhat somber note. As we all know, in the last two weeks, the unprecedented and the spontaneous outpouring of grief and gratitude after the death of Mr. Lee Kuan Yew has been a national catharsis. We have learned that even in his passing, Mr. Lee's final contribution was to bring all of us together in ways which was never done before. And for us to all realize that in our grieving, we rediscover our common identity. And so it's perhaps fitting that the topic of this final lecture in the SR Northern series is society and identity. Our sense of nationhood has never been stronger than in the past weeks. And when the fighter jets soar overhead and the national anthem is played on August 9th, that lump in our collective throats will tell us who we are. One people, one nation, one Singapore. But is it possible to be more specific and more specifically to define our identity besides knowing that we have one? I jotted down a few sentences and asked some friends to identify the country, which I described as follows. We are an immigrant society, and therefore persistence and resilience are the hallmarks of our identity. We've been open to the world, but in recent years have turned more inwards and even somewhat hostile towards foreigners. We take pride in our egalitarian ethos, even though income inequality is worsening. We squabble amongst ourselves, but to foreigners, we close ranks. We have a can-do attitude, which can be perceived as being arrogantly proud of our exceptionalism. We tout our meritocracy as a core value, even though it is starting to fray a bit. Above all, we love to celebrate ourselves and our achievements and the yes and the best is yet to be. Who are we? The Singaporeans, I asked, unanimously said, of course, that's us, Singaporeans. Interestingly, another group I asked replied, of course you're describing our USA and the values behind our American dream. So here, you have two countries, worlds apart almost in every possible way from population and geographic size to historical origins, from political and social culture to current and future challenges, and yet the American dream and the Singapore dream are almost interchangeable. Upon reflection, that is not strange. After all, once you strip a dream of its specific cultural context, many societies aspire for largely the same things in life. The common element between the American and Singapore dreams is simply that both societies are audacious, brash, and young enough to believe that whoever you are, wherever you come from, this is your land of opportunity. 
This is where you can achieve your personal and family dreams and pursue a life of meaning and purpose. But this is more the immigrant's dream of Singapore than the Singaporean's dream nowadays, simply because many citizens now do not feel that they can achieve anything if they only just tried. Yet it is crucial to Singapore's continuing survival and well-being to maintain, to nurture, and to polish this dream, both in terms of keeping its borders open to the outside world, as well as maintaining social mobility within. So in tackling this final lecture, I want to ask a simple question. How do we maintain the Singapore dream as a meaningful, purposeful aspiration for all Singaporeans for the next 50 years? What are the most critical things we must do to overcome future or already emerging challenges to this dream? After some deliberation, I've consolidated the various challenges and must-dos into three major overarching tasks, and they are, first, to strengthen the cohesive diversity which underpins our identity against a climate of increasingly narrow rigidity. Second, to improve social mobility and a culture of egalitarianism in the midst of a fraying meritocracy and worsening income inequality. And third, to build a collaborative governance style and an information-rich civil society. Let me now deal with each of these. First, strengthening cohesive diversity. Our immigrant origins have created mechanisms for harmonious racial and religious cohabitation, but the traditional fault lines which were successfully held together for many years are facing unfamiliar, non-traditional pressures which may result in new cracks. There is increasingly vocal social diversity from people of different LGBT affiliations or alternative family norms such as single or unmarried parents or same-sex couples. In addition, there's increasing intra-ethnic diversity from immigrants or foreign workers who may belong to the same race as defined by our traditional CMIO, Chinese, Malay, Indian, others categories, but hardly identify or socialize with each other. For example, new residents from China, Taiwan, and Hong Kong all form their own cliques in Singapore, which even largely exclude the Singaporean Chinese. The same is true for even more fragmented South Asians, whether they're foreign workers or new citizens. At another level, the HDB heartland worldview with its kopitiams and roti prata stalls is being assailed by the slick and slightly intimidating globalization represented by Marina Bay Sands and Billionaire's Cove in Sentosa. In other words, race and class and a consensus on social issues are being increasingly complex and intertwined in Singapore. The average Singaporean is anxious and confused by this onslaught of what is becoming divisive diversity. That anxiety, what social scientists call cognitive dissonance, when reality increasingly diverges from our expectations, arises from the, when the traditional racial lens of CMIO, or the traditional norms of heterosexual orientation, what social scientists called heteronormativity, a big word, 
no longer seem adequate to describe a rapidly changing Singapore society. What do we do? I think one way to resolve cognitive dissonance is to actually abandon our stereotyped presumptions and expectations and simply treat people as individuals and not categories. We should consciously blur or even abolish the CMIO model's simplistically rigid racial categories and even welcome the multiple identities and more complex sub-ethnicities which is increasingly the real Singapore of today. The CMIO model, created out of necessity in the aftermath of a racially charged road to independence, has helped to create common ground between those of different tongues and dialects, but it also has the effect of oversimplifying the diversity that is our social mix. How we define people often shapes how they behave. So the less we pigeonhole people, the more chances we have for cohesive diversity. Just thinking about a post-CMIO model already seeds a future paradigm shift. Singapore is arguably ethnoculturally more similar to New York City than to the homogeneity of Tokyo or Shanghai. After all, the hallmark of New York's success is that so many culturally traditional or ethnically specific neighborhoods can coexist cheek by jowl and even next to skyscraper icons of global capitalism. And what seems to be totally unplanned and therefore chaotic has its own internal logic. There are no rigid expectations. There is no clash with reality and therefore no cognitive dissonance because everyone is unique, everyone is quirky, everyone is rude and kind at different times, and everyone has to simply respect and even appreciate the other's difference. This genuine form of cohesive diversity is messy, dynamic, and defies classification. But New Yorkers, for all their amazing diversity, all love their city. Like New Yorkers, Singaporeans must also embrace each other as individuals and not just as categories along the CMIO model. Without stereotypical expectations, we can accept and appreciate each person as different, but from whom we can learn new things. In a post-CMIO model, people will have more time and space to replace old stereotypes with more nuanced complexities, reflected in more varieties of social ethnic identities. This is a strategic imperative, not just for enriching the Singapore identity, but to continually attract the best talent from around the world to this island, in the words of PM Lee, quote, the best city to live, work, and play, unquote. Another way to strengthen cohesive diversity is for the majority race in Singapore to consciously overcome what one insightful non-Chinese blogger has called the mindset of Chinese privilege which is the attitude of a majority race towards minorities where it does not see itself as racist, but acts on assumptions which are based on privileges which only it can have as the majority race. It can manifest in small ways such as speaking in the majority race language, even in the presence of foreigners, or making jokes which are racial slurs and justifying them simply because they were lighthearted and not malicious. 
a final building block for cohesive diversity is recognition of the marginalized people whom my research assistant Andrew Yeo compared to the composer Claude Debussy's famous dictum that, quote, music is the space between the notes, unquote, meaning that there is equal importance in what is unseen and unheard as in what is seen and heard. It is the voices of the foreign worker, the single mother, and the many other silent spaces between our national notes which make our Singapore song complete and more interesting. Even though they are neither citizens nor permanent residents, the one and a half million permanently transient, semi-skilled foreign workers and domestic helpers cannot forever be an invisible community overlaying the visible Singapore with uneasy points of contact which can become flashpoints. And a society that is measured by the height of its skyscrapers and size of its shopping malls is, in my view, the ultimate Dubai-style dystopia. Far better that we measure ourselves by how we treat the marginalized and the voiceless in our midst. And as the cacophony of strident voices increase in the future, the gays against the anti-gays, the born against Christians, again, against virtually everybody else of no religion, the PRC Chinese against the Swaku local Singaporean, the elite Delhi-born immigrant against his uncouth Tamil neighbor, and all the people in the silent spaces between the notes as they even struggle to even make a small sound, we should not be worried. We should perhaps even pause to listen to this cacophony. It is just nothing more than a new Singapore song in the making. Not commissioned for a famous performer to sing at National Day rallies, but created by the people themselves from the ground up. And that is the true Singapore song. Second, <laughs> who played the Singapore song just now? Can we hear it again? That was a good cue. If the rest of you could do the same thing and talk at the same time, then we would have the true Singapore song. Secondly, improving social mobility and the egalitarian ethos. The path to Singapore, the path to success in Singapore, has largely been through academic merit in very transparent national examinations. That's the basis of what we've always called Singapore meritocracy, which has its philosophical roots in Confucianism and its organizational principles in Imperial China's elite class of scholar bureaucrats. This model has actually served us very well in our early years. But having already achieved the 50-year continuous growth from third world to first, over time, the Singapore model is in danger of becoming a static meritocracy, which sees people based only on a narrow measure of capability in single snapshots of time, examination results basically, and from there on creates a self-perpetuating elite class. And ironically, the original social leveler and the purest form of Singapore-style meritocracy, our educational system, may in fact be perpetuating intergenerational 
class stratification rather than help to level the playing field. The warning signs are quite clear. Only 40% of the students in the most prestigious primary schools live in HDB flats, in contrast with 80% of all primary school students residing in HDB flats. More than half of all PSE scholarship recipients live in private housing, compared with only 15% of the general population. And 60% of PSE scholars come from only two schools, Raffles and Hua Chong. People laughing must be people from Raffles and Hua Chong. <laughs> in the Q&A later on, I shall take a poll, and those of you who admit you're from Raffles and Hua Chong, you better get ready for a lot of ribbing. Another statistic, 63% of university-educated fathers, 37% of those with secondary school qualifications, and only 12% of fathers with primary education or less had children with university degrees. You really see there the self-perpetuating cycle, not based on wealth, but based on educational attainment, which is related ultimately also to income. No doubt it is absolutely true as DPM Taman has pointed out, that the index for social mobility is still higher in Singapore than in many other countries, including some of the famous egalitarian Nordic countries. That is a fact. This is comforting, but it's no reason for complacency, especially against a background of worsening income inequality globally, and particularly because we have already attained such heights of excellence that if we only compare ourselves with other countries, we're always going to be ranking number one, we must set our own internal targets of achievement and not just simply compare ourselves with others. Now, some people have advocated that the way to redress structural inequality is to practice affirmative action for the disadvantaged group. For example, to give bonus examination points to any student whose parents did not attain university education. This would, however, in my view, be the start of an unending process of affirmative actions which will only demean and discredit our meritocracy in the long run. I believe that further reforms of the overall educational system can promote social leveling without undermining the principles of meritocracy nor the academic rigor for which Singapore is so well known. Let me share some of these possible measures with you. Ending pre-teen streaming in the PSLE exams, and having all schools teach children a continuous 10 years period straight through to secondary four is one possibility. So that less academic pressure early on in life allows more time for teachers to focus on the personal development of students, which has been found to have a great influence on later academic achievements. Another option is to is the fact that giving admissions priority on the basis of proximity from homes, that whole measure has to be relooked because the most prestigious and elite schools are also located, coincidentally, in the most wealthy parts of the island. The handful of top primary schools, when we have so many across the country, the top five or so primary schools have five-year waiting lists. And my son, who's going to have his son next month, is already totally angst about whether he has to start applying for his yet unborn son to wait for a primary school position or not. We also know that parents have queued overnight 
or more likely they've asked their maids to queue overnight for positions in these elite schools. We must not forget that when the PAP came to power, it then took the radical step of essentially nationalizing the entire educational system in order to achieve its then somewhat socialist goals. Similarly, radical steps need to be at least discussed, if not immediately adopted. We cannot simply presume that what has worked in the last 50 years will automatically continue to work in the future. Replacing the rigid, narrowly directed, gifted educational program with a far broader, multifaceted program which focuses on the special needs of all students, whether it be due to special talents in the arts and sciences or other areas, or special disabilities such as mild autism or dyslexia. Is yet another option. There has been much talk that education must now aim to develop the full potential of every student. It is now time to walk the talk. Schools in a geographic cluster can specialize in their own areas of excellence and serve special needs students from that cluster, whether those special needs are special talents or special disabilities. We have only focused narrowly in the gifted program on academic talent of very young children. Replacing or at least augmenting the traditional A-level results with a specially crafted Singapore version of the Scholastic Aptitude Test or SAT, which as the name implies, seeks to measure the inherent aptitude of a person for critical thinking rather than just exam performance is yet another possibility. We have all known everyone is critical of the American SAT system and how it is also culturally biased towards the privileged. But for all its faults, it has been a laudable attempt to be a social leveler for American high school students from non-elite schools to enter elite universities. And I'm advocating that we do not adopt an American SAT test, but that a, a aptitude test, which is not based purely on exam performance in the past, be something we can use to augment the measurement of performance among our young. If the PSC, Public Service Commission, awarded its prestigious scholarships only partly on the basis of A-level grades and partly on the basis of a Singapore-style SAT, which might even include psychometric tests, which the US SAT test does not have, we may have higher hopes of president scholars, permanent secretaries, and ministers, not just coming from RJC and Hua Chong, but our polytechnics and perhaps even our ITEs. Examples of other easier and even simpler programs include providing student counseling services in every school because people have, researchers have found out that disproportionately more students from lower income and less educated families have emotional and domestic problems which inhibit their academic performance. Or introducing volunteer tuition services by university students for secondary schools as part of mandatory community services in all our universities, which SMU already has, which will obviously help students who cannot afford expensive private tutors. Yet another idea which is already being implemented, thankfully, is the rotation of top principals and teachers into neighborhood schools. Now all these are just piecemeal measures which added up together can play an important role in leveling the playing field 
and improving social mobility. Besides reforms to the educational system, the civil service also leads, needs to lead the way in social leveling. Recent announcement that non-graduates will be allowed to fill positions previously eligible only for graduates is a good start. But only if the most elite cadre of civil servants, the, the admin service, changes its recruitment criteria to replace academic pedigree with psychometric and other aptitude tests which create an open and level playing field, can we start to have a continuous dynamic meritocracy where one's destiny is not already largely determined at 12 years old, reinforced at 18, and virtually fixed at 22 years old. Third, and finally, I think we need to build a collaborative governance style and an information-rich civil society. When I first entered university some 40-plus years ago, the target of student activism was an obscure Latin expression, in loco parentis, which is a legal doctrine whereby certain institutions such as universities actually assume the legal powers of a parent. The Singapore state has not assumed the same level of paternalism over its citizens, but it has come close, making decisions which might elsewhere be individual responsibilities. Whilst this has been widely accepted in the past 50 years, a paternalistic governance culture may need to change to a collaborative one in the future. This is already happening with the abundance of debate about directions facing Singapore in the post-LKY era. However, such a governance, structure, a governance culture of participatory democracy can only work if the institutions of civil society can be actively engaged in decision-making. And for that to happen, civil society players need access to that lifeblood of robust discussion, which is freely available and largely unrestricted information. Information is the oxygen without which civil society players suffocate in their own ignorance and resort only to repetitive drumming of their own causes, but without the ability to really engage with their own members, with other players, or with the government. Access to information is an existential imperative for civil society to perform its functions responsibly and knowledgeably. The currently unequal access to information is called by academics information asymmetry. And one of the reasons all governments around the world are averse to sharing information is not just because of the sensitivity of state secrets, but because information is power. And asymmetry between seeker and owner of information shapes their relative power relationship. Now, to rectify this imbalance, some civil society activists have called for a Freedom of Information Act, or FOIA. This would require open access to and declassification of all government archives after 25 to 30 years, and almost unfettered access to information about oneself at any time. So, should Singapore 
simply adopt a Freedom of Information Act. Well, I'm not sure that just joining the bandwagon is going to be by itself meaningful. Of the 99 countries which have FOIA legislation, are such beacons of liberal democracy as Nigeria, Uganda, Zimbabwe, China, Pakistan, Thailand, Russia, Yemen, and all the stands of Central Asia. <laughs> the reputations of these countries for good governance, I think, are so questionable, as is supported by your response, that one must wonder whether their own FOIA are actually devices to smoke out and track potential dissidents. Of course, most Western liberal democracies do have effectively functioning FOIA. But while it has redressed information asymmetry, the downside is that it also exacerbates the adversarial relationship between civil society and government. And whilst this may be the underlying basis for a check and balance system in the Western political cultures, it does not encourage a collaborative governance style. It can even be dysfunctional for the conduct of diplomacy and general statecraft, which must often require total confidentiality between parties. Just witness Hillary Clinton and her whole debacle about her private uh, email system, which was her response to unfettered access uh, of all government information in the United States by citizens. So one possible way to redress information asymmetry within a collaborative government structure is to legislate a code on information disclosure, which is not legally enforceable, but morally binding, and sets out the principles by which ministries can or should not protect information, and the importance of open sharing of information for civil society. Ministries would be required to employ independent access to information officers, such as retired judges, to evaluate and give written replies to information requests. Media attention and public pressure would serve as leverage in cases of non-compliance with the code or where there is controversy. Hong Kong, I understand, has a similar system to what I've just described, and it may behoove us to study that in more depth. But with more information, equality, there will inevitably be more and different interpretations of data, of events, of history itself. Official narratives, such as the controversy surrounding Operation Cold Store, will be questioned and debated by generations of new historians. The young possess a certain oddly dispassionate objectivity towards history compared to many of us for whom the past 50 years were filled with deep emotion and very personally partisan perspectives. The young don't particularly take our version of history as the gospel truth. They want to discover the facts themselves and make up their own minds. This is healthy because the attribute of critical inquiry and continual search for the truth will stand the next generation in good stead as they transit to becoming the leadership generation. And so, rather than consider such reassessments of history to be revisionism, which has to be prevented, we should accept that information equality will inevitably lead to such questioning. But we should also have confidence that history, through the collective wisdom of time 
and millions of people, past, present, and future, will accurately and fairly assess the enormous contributions and legacies of our past leaders, including Mr. Lee Kuan Yew. We should trust in our young people enough to allow space for them to develop their own opinions of history. And in the end, our future leaders of Singapore should be bold enough to own the future rather than simply defend the past. Now, history comprises both the universally experienced, historically momentous events, and at the same time, the small personal milestones of each of us. And in this way, SG50 is a special year of meaning for me personally. Because on one hand, while we collectively commemorate our 50 years of independence and simultaneously mourn the death of the first and last of our founding fathers, I shall also celebrate the arrival of my first grandchild. Such is the cycle of life, of persons dying and babies being born. My grandson, due next month, and will be 50 when Singapore celebrates its 100th anniversary, can only say he was born a few months after Mr. Lee Kuan Yew passed away. And even for my own children, who are already young adults, Mr. Lee was always more a legend than a real person. Few young people today have ever known him other than as the textbook father of independent Singapore until he came truly alive during the week of mourning. My elder son's only memory of Mr. Lee was when he and Mrs. Lee visited my family on the funeral of my father some 16 years ago when Renhua was only a teenager and Mr. Lee was already 75 years old. When I was detained by Mr. Lee under the ISA, I was only 24, and he was already 53 years old in his fearsome, intimidating prime of his life. When I joined the board of GIC, which he chaired, I was 44, he was 72. When he inaugurated SMU's Horihua Lecture Series, which was named after my father, I was 50, he was already 80. Such is the age gap that most of the people who worked with him have passed on, and those who worked directly under him have long retired. To the extent that in our initial years, Singapore was almost synonymous with Lee Kuan Yew, he defined our national identity, and we looked towards him for signals on how to behave, to think, to view ourselves. He said, rugged society, and that was our identity during my generation's youth. As nation building gained traction and we started to embrace ourselves as a people, a society, and a nation, we started to experiment more with our own personal markers of identity. And today, I dare say, Singapore comprises multiple identities. We commonly describe a national identity as something constructed from tangible markers such as Singlish or durian or chicken rice or intangible values such as pragmatism or tolerance or whatever. If we put all that together to sculpt a single proverbial 
Merlion identity, I think it's going to be a lot more iconic and recognizable to foreigners rather than to ourselves. The Merlion, I think we have never really adopted as our identity because it's artificial. And any identity that is a static snapshot of a people frozen in time is not a real identity. Our identity is a continual and never-ending work in progress of an evolving people. Our identity may have started more as a rojak salad than as an artificial merline, but even over time, even the rojak salad will evolve further with new and unusual ingredients. Like a salad stop menu, I should add, to plug my son-in-law's company. I hope all of you have heard of salad stop. That a new salad stop rojak style will be the new Singapore identity. But the merline will remain unnatural and static and animal. Identity is what you are attached to, what you would fight for, what you care about. In a previous lecture, I proposed that we develop a uniquely Singapore human development index, which would measure our overall well-being besides only having GDP as an indicator. These intangible markers which measure our progress as a nation can also in part form our identity because it will give heft and weight and shape to what we value. I think we must put in place a framework for this fluid discussion to take place, to be mapped and to be expressed. While Singapore's identity is rooted in its immigrant heritage and that openness should always be a cornerstone of our sense of self and underpin our receptivity towards those from other cultures, we should not and need not feel lost if we are not able to define a single common identity. We are all identities in creation and the end result will not be uniform. Instead, perhaps by sharing stories of who we are, we find resonance with each other. These collective stories can kindle a sense of being Singaporean, even if we cannot easily articulate or pin down specifics. And so I'd like to close, not by defining the Singapore identity, but simply by sharing with you my personal journey as a migrant to these shores. My father was a fourth generation Singaporean with his forefathers working as boat builders in Tanjong Ru. They built the tongkangs or the deep bottomed bumboats or barges which ferried goods and people between Singapore and the hundreds of ships that made Singapore the preeminent port in Asia since several hundred years ago. But I was not born here, did not study here, nor live here. I received my naturalized citizenship by a technicality because my father was ambassador of Singapore to Thailand and our home since childhood became technically sovereign Singapore territory. So for several years as a teenager, I actually raised the flag every morning at our hastily erected flagpole on technically Singapore soil in Thailand and eventually I qualified to be a citizen. But my first extended stay in Singapore for more than a week or so at a time was at the age of 20 when I came here for national service. Not ever having lived here, I wanted to see what it was like to be a Singaporean. 
during NS, I was taunted by so many Singaporeans as a Jakantan, <laughs> which for those of you who don't know Hokkien means eating potato. I think you know what that would mean, which is a derogatory term for someone who's lost his roots and apes the West, much like a banana would be in Asian American slang. And though I can do a pretty decent Singlish by now, my natural accent, as you can hear, is somewhat between English and American or somewhere in between, and my Mandarin has no dialect overtone. Although I studied at Taiwanese and American universities, I finally graduated from Singapore University. So what is my identity? I'm not sure. And I'll always remember that Mr. Lee Kuan Yew once told me to my face that the only smart thing I ever did was to marry a Singaporean. <laughs> because he was wise to know that through Claire, I would find a sense of home. And also by saying that she would vote PAP in every election <laughs> after that. I have lived and worked in this country <clears throat> since 1972, altogether 43 years now. I met my wife here. My children were all born and grew up here. My simple answer as to why I chose to live and put down my roots here is that here I do not feel a stranger. In Thailand, where I spent my entire childhood, I spoke Thai, but I was always an outsider. In Taiwan, in America, I learned much. I made good friends, but I was a stranger in a strange land. However, Singapore's multitude of races and cultures made me feel no longer alien. And perhaps that is also what makes other new migrants decide to settle in Singapore, that they could also create their own identities here. An openness and acceptance of foreigners, and indeed of other, other Singaporeans who may be different from the mainstream in various ways, whatever it may be, can perhaps become a defining <clears throat> characteristic of our identity. We can create our own identities here, even as we inherit certain common characteristics. Singapore is my home because whoever I was, or am now, or want to be, I feel I can be that person here. However, this statement of pride is not universal. I'm fortunate because I am a privileged Chinese heterosexual male businessman. And that is not a joke. Can other persons whose music is the silent space between the notes, <clears throat> can they also believe what I just said so that we can honestly declare that cohesive diversity, that delightful oxymoron, is the unique marker of Singapore identity? For the sake of the next 50 years, I fervently hope that we can and will. I now come to the end of my journey, a humbling exercise in discovering my own ignorance, even as I tried to speak on a wide range of topics. It's almost been one year since I was asked to be the first SR Nathan Fellow, and six months 
since the first lecture. I shall henceforth forfeit my title as temporary professor, my life goal, which I finally achieved. <laughs> I shall now return my faculty card to the NUS registrar and hope that my SMU colleagues will welcome me back. <laughs> and I can finally return to my favorite pastime, as some of you have known, of watching consecutive and mind-numbing, totally forgettable movies on long-haul flights, which I've been deprived of for the past six months because I had to write these lectures during the only free time I had. <laughs> Before I end, I'd like to thank several people during the past few months. First, of course, is to IPS. Its director, my old friend, Mr. Janadas Devon, who was not completely honest when he said this would be a simple thing you can do in your spare time. <laughs> I'd like to thank the committee for the Northern Fellowship, who uh, <clears throat> also decided that I would be its first victim. And Mr. Northern, who took the risk of asking me to be the first Northern Fellow, despite my lack of academic credentials and my reputation, quite undeserved, of course, for always putting my foot in my mouth. <laughs> Thank everyone at IPS and the committee and Mr. Nardin for your trust. I hope I have not totally dishonored you, and I do wish the next victim good luck. <laughs> to my research assistant, Andrew Yeo, sitting around here somewhere, Thank you for being available 24-7 and for passing on many of the quite scatological and almost defamatory comments about me on social media after every lecture. <laughs> Andrew is a poster boy of the new Singaporean success story. Poor student in a neighborhood school, failed his poly exams, clawed his way up through a SIM distance learning university, but did so well that the London School of Economics accepted him for a master's degree in social policy. And in my view, IPS is lucky to have him and he'd be a real asset wherever he goes. And I'm proud that at least in Singapore, we do have an open enough system and we do have young people who are not the paragons of typical success stories. And Andrew truly has my respect for that. Where, Andrew, you owe me a lunch for this, <laughs> and 10% of your salary. <laughs> to all my children, all five of them, in, including my in-laws, thank you for organizing get-togethers with your peers so that I can understand how younger people feel about things and not pretend that I am a young person. As only you know, everything that we do together as a family brings us that much closer and stronger as an entity. And the dinner conversations where you all gave your views and the emails you've written me even up to the last day before this lecture to change certain phrases that you didn't like, they all have contributed much. To my fiercest critic, <clears throat> my strongest supporter, and my best friend, my wife Claire, Thank you in particular for never mincing your words, though I wish sometimes you could be a bit kinder. <laughs> and, and finally, to, to the many of you here in the audience or outside to whom I've reached out to during these months for your views, 
who've read and commented on the lectures and whose views I may have shamelessly borrowed, or who wrote to me after attending a lecture or reading an essay, thank you so much for being part of this journey. Just simply knowing that all of us are out there, each trying in our own ways to make this a better Singapore is very comforting. Over the past half year, I've put forth a range of ideas, some possibly quite crazy, some possibly workable. I hope I've not offended anyone, and if I have, I truly apologize. The ideas themselves are not that important. But what I hope to have done, and which I hope will last long after tonight, is to encourage people to think their own thoughts and put them out there in the marketplace of ideas so that in this messy exchange of voices and opinions, we all learn something from each other. In the next 50 years, the Singapore after Mr. Lee Kuan Yew, the line between leader and follower will start to blur. We will not just be disciplined and unquestioning followers. Our leaders will walk amongst and not ahead of us. They will be part of, and not simply lead, the national conversation. And other people may march to their own drum beats and at their own pace. And we may look from outside to be less orderly, less consensual than in the past. But this is to be expected. Civil society is not a disciplined army. It is not an organized orchestra producing the soothing melodies of a lovely symphony. It is a loud cacophony of voices, of disorganized aspirations, of an exciting marketplace of ideas. But what I certainly hope will never change from one generation to another is a passion to make this country continue to succeed. <clears throat> to be proud of who we have been, are, and will be, and to revel in the, co the co cohesive diversity that makes us all Singaporeans, whatever that word may mean to each of us. The 13th century Persian poet Rumi once wrote something which should speak to each of us. He wrote, and I quote, you are not a drop in the ocean. You are the entire ocean in a drop." Unquote. In other words, you and I are not cogs in a machine or grains of sand or drops in the ocean. In each of us is the whole of Singapore. Each of us represents the collective <clears throat> identities and histories which make up our ocean and on which we shall continue our journey together. Thank you for these many hours of sharing in the past. Good night and be well. Thank you. Um, let me begin by thanking Pomping uh, for a wonderful series of five lectures um, that has um, gained a lot of attention and um, uh, attraction both online and in the mainstream media, and as seen in the growing attendance of uh, each talk. I mean, usually in a series of lectures in a university setting, 
um, the audiences dwindle, but in this case, <laughs> they have expanded, and that I think is, is, uh, says more than anything else uh, that you have delivered a, a very useful series of talks. Um, let me begin by asking a very general question before I, I, I um, throw the floor open. Um, identity in migrant societies is always provisional, uh, and that is the attraction of migrant societies, why migrants like to go to migrant societies, because identities are never fixed, they are always in transition, um, they're always open. And as a result, the Singapore identity has always been a matter of addition, not subtraction, enlargement, not reduction, more, not less. And that is the glory of, of um, the journey, as you have described it uh, in, your, in, your, in your address today. But there are also risks. Um, um, diversity does pose risks. Um, we have seen um, diverse societies over the last 60, 70 years, this very recent history, explode in, um, um, in horror. Um, the Indian subcontinent exploded took place in 47. There's only about five, six years before you and I were born. Uh, and in our own history, we have seen uh, tensions emerge, violence. Um, our own founding took place uh, amidst such violence. Uh, you've described diversity, the emerging diversities, existing diversities. If you were to reflect on that diversity that you've described, what do you think would be the main fault lines over the next 50 years. Will they be the same that we are familiar with, the CMIO model along, that, along, the, along the fault lines of the CMIO model, or something else that may emerge? My, my sense is that the, the most important fault line that can reemerge is if in the future any government tries to establish the primacy of a particular ethnic group through the primacy of a particular language or particular religion. Um, that is to me, we've seen what's happened in Sri Lanka which had for generations been quite cohesive and had Tamils and Sinhalese had cohabited together and through the introduction of Sinhalese as the official language I think that started the ball rolling. It was a clear signal that one race had to be the dominant one. We can look around our neighbors and see the same thing. So I'm not at all advocating that by blurring the CMIO model that we should ever allow any particular race to ever establish itself as the primary one. Far from that. I'm only advocating that in fact the four very rough categorizations of CMIO be allowed to be blurred further so that we have a greater diversity, but it must be a diversity where there is no dominant race that establishes itself, that simply because it is numerically in dominance, it establishes superiority in clear signals of, of uh, language or religion. Those fault lines can reemerge if a government in the future should want to change. We've seen how in Sri Lanka, a government came in, they made Sinhalese the primary language, and we've seen 
how for decades after that, society unraveled. And it's not impossible that that could happen in Singapore again. We have um, people from the other room also writing questions, right? Please, who would like to start off? Yeah, please, go ahead. I think they can breathe. If, if I can't see you, please wave your hand and possibly shout. Remember, the, this is civil society. There's a yeah. cacophony of voices, so you can shout out your question and interrupt other people. The glare is such that I can't quite see properly. Yeah. Okay, but please, go ahead. Uh, hi, Mr. Ho. Um, thanks very much for the series of lectures and stimulating our thought. I'd just like to ask a question around identity and education through the lens of Plato's Republic. So in Plato's Republic, he says, you know, the best way that you should organize a society is that, A, you put the children into a pool, common pool, so that they don't have, and they receive the same education, so they don't get any inherited advantage. And second, there should be no differentiation between the children, there should be no slaves, there's one social class. So that is sort of an ideal situation, which speaks to what you said about, um, about not having uh, labels. But my first comment around identity is that regardless of how we try to impose these kind of social structures, um, many, many social experiments demonstrate that people have natural affinity to their, to their in-group, right? So I don't think that you can artificially take that away. So we'd like to ask you a little bit more about that. So that's question one. Uh, question two, around education. You proposed many different tactical efforts to improve education. Strategically, I think what you're saying is that we need to improve education for all so that the benefits of inherited advantage are diminished so that if uh, there's no need for tuition after class, then the rich parents that can send their kids to tuition, the, the kids don't benefit which is something like what you would see in the uh, Republic model. So, sort of, these are two comments. I'd like to hear your thoughts. Well, I, I guess my answer to your first comment is, is I would actually agree with you that you cannot change uh, human nature that people find affinity amongst people of their own kind, whatever that kind might be. So, I'm not denying that. I'm, all I'm simply saying is that I think we should try more consciously to break down barriers in order to allow people to have more cross-cultural uh, communications. As for your second question about education, I think I need to make a distinction here that I'm not at all recommending, nor am I talking about the quality of the specific curriculum, because that is a separate issue altogether. Whether our literacy and our numeracy and our entire curriculum system is adequate or not. I'm commenting on aspects of how the educational system is structured, such as even admission systems and so on, that I think have not helped to make education the great social leveler that it could be. If, if, if that's a simple question, then my answer would be a clear no. Because all the, all the points I have mentioned, whatever that might be, and, I, and they're certainly 
not exhaustive and they're from an amateur, not from a professional educator, etc. But I don't think any of them require, any of the measures that I propose require spending more money. And I think one of the problems we have, and perhaps our civil service has, is that because we are now a rich country, we think that spending more money on something actually solves the problem. That is not true. That is absolutely not true. And we, I don't think we should fall into the trap that it is a lack of resources which is the problem here. A lot of the restructuring that I think Singapore society should go through in the next 50 years is not a matter of real reallocating financial resources. In fact, I think our government has been very good at allocating financial resources. The allocation of resources and education, at least in my knowledge of it through universities and so on, and I think everyone's acknowledgement is that this government's priority on education spending is probably top of breed in the whole world. But yet, we still have issues of social mobility. So I don't think it's a problem of resources. I think it's a problem of re-looking how we structure and execute our educational system so that we can tweak it here and there, not for greater excellence in curriculum, but for greater equality in outcome. Education is actually the second largest item in the budget. It's just after defense. There's not much of a difference. But I was curious And the other things I would take money out of if, um, after, uh, before I would take money out of F-16s. I'm a great believer in our, uh, our security system. I was curious about something that you mentioned about psychometric tests. Um, unfortunately, the press is here, but never mind. I know. Uh, <laughs> Can I say it for you? No. I mean, the one institution in Singapore that has consistently used psychometric tests for the past, what, 30-odd years is the People's Action Party. And as far as I know, we haven't had ministers from Poly and ITE. So how do you... Well, if you, I know you... We will never know the success of the PAP's use of psychometric tests to differentiate oh. whether a candidate is, should be an MP or a minister, which you and I know what is being done. Because all the candidates who go to the PAP for consideration are already from Hua Chong and RJ. So therefore, you can, you can never answer that question. The only question you can ask is, of all those guys out there, all these eminent straight A students, all from RJC, Hua Chong, and all the elite schools, have the psychometric tests taken the better ones from there uh, to be our ministers. And since the press is here, I will say absolutely they have. <laughs> I do have to score some points to make up for anything else yeah. I've said in the past. Yeah. Any questions? Yeah. yeah, please go ahead. Yes, please. I think you, you had a question? You had the, please have the mic. Hi. Please, next up. My question you. is, uh, is it worrying that our sense of, of national identity is very much tied in uh, economic pragmatism and economic success and material success? And if you look at how uh, the Singapore story is largely about our transition from a third world to the first, even in the last week of uh, National Morning, it was always about how Lee Kuan Yew brought us from a third world to a first. So the risk of that is when, national, when economic progress stops or even contracts, our sense of national identity uh, will cease to exist. So are we able to build an identity that is beyond pragmatism and a more cultural sense of identity? I, I, for one, don't believe that whatever national identity we have today, however you want to define it, I don't want to go into defining it, but whatever that we, we sense that we feel a togetherness about 
I clearly don't believe it's due to economic pragmatism. I think it rose, the appreciation for Mr. Lee Kuan Yew as an individual was definitely very much tied into the fact that he took this whole country from poverty to economic wealth. But I do not think we, that defines our identity. I think that's the, that fact gives us the gratitude towards whether it be the PAP or towards Lee Kuan Yew. But I don't think that's what binds us together. I think one of the things that I think is interesting about identity is it's often not a sense of who you are, but who you are not. And you, very often, you take any Singaporean, when you go overseas, immediately, and you're confronted with other nationalities and identities, you know you don't belong there. You know you don't belong here, you, don't know, you know you don't belong there, and so on. And somehow when you come home, you feel you're home. And it's not because it's a big national identity banner blazed out there, it's because we're, this is where your friends are, this is where you grew up. So I think the markers of identity is very ambiguous. It's not, doesn't, it's not worthwhile for us to try to define it, whether it's durian, chicken rice, or any particular values. But I would not be so cynical as to say our identity derives from our economic pragmatism. And for those of us who've done national service, and those women in the future whom I've advocated will do national service, <laughs> which I hope the government will hear, I honestly say, you talk to other fellow Singaporeans, the love for this country is not simply because we think our GDP is highest in the world. That's part of why we feel grateful, but it does not define us. Um, you first, could you, and then there are two people up there. Okay, you go first. Do you have a mic? Yeah, just shout. <laughs> Okay, well, I have three thoughts. Uh, I, I hope you can comment on them. Uh, first is the observation that if we are really talking about increasing mobility in, in our society, we are also talking not just about upward mobility, but also downward mobility. You are increasing the chance that people who have done well in previous years may go downwards in the future years. Uh, I suspect that people will not accept the increase in mobility without uh, robust redistributive mechanisms to kind of have a safety net, uh, which may in fact take the form of uh, uh, affirmative action. So I think increased mobility uh, necessitates affirmative action to a certain extent. Uh, secondly, uh, another observation uh, is that as a member of the public service, uh, I think we have recognized for some time that uh, participatory governance is going to happen. Uh, I think it's not our choice. Uh, it will happen whether or not we want it. And the government's uh, position now is basically, do we want to be part of the conversation and to shape the path by which we go down to participatory governance? Or do we have to be dragged by the people kicking and screaming to get there? And I think as the government, uh, as years go by, our uh, ability to choose between the two paths is reducing. So as a government, we do have to make the choice and soon. Thirdly, a mature identity uh, could be one that is uh, to a certain extent taken for granted. Perhaps uh, a sign of our confidence as a mature uh, society is that we don't really care so much about what constitutes identity anymore. Uh, and we, can, we don't have to keep defending it against questioners and doubters. We can entertain questions about it. We can even be comfortable with ambiguity around it. 
And maybe that's the, the surest sign that we have actually made some progress over 50 years to get a good identity. I agree. Thank you. Um, there are two of that in the gallery. I haven't got any written questions from the other room. Would you? Yeah. Up there. Hi. Um, good, good evening, Mr. Ho. Thank you for your stimulating and rather humorous speech. Uh, my name is Wendy, and I also had the privilege to speak with Claire and learn a lot from her. So I'm, I'm curious because um, for the past 50 years, um, Singapore's narrative towards work is that, you know, we have to work hard, we have to survive because nobody owes us a living. So we work hard what we say we do, right? And but of late, um, I can't help but notice that Singapore's um, like engagement scores are like one of the lowest amongst Asia and definitely behind like US and and Europe. And in addition, there was some reports that you know, keep saying that you know Singaporeans are one of the most unhappy group of people. So I, I'm curious because if moving forward the next 50 years, right? I mean, why? I guess I have two questions. One is what. Why, why do we think that you know, Singaporeans consistently have our least engaged employees um, in, in Asia? And, and the second question is, um, what do you think is this um, future narrative towards work that we need to have so that you know, we could bring the best of Singapore to contribute to our community? Thank you. Thank you. Uh, first of all, the, all the surveys done have shown that we are not an unhappy people. We are an under-happy people. <laughs> I referred that in, a, in one of my lectures that I didn't quite understand, but it's uniquely Singaporean. We're not unhappy, which is a clear uh, indication of sentiment. Neither are we happy. We are under-happy. <laughs> so on that score, I think we need to take this with a certain grain of salt. You know the whole, the, the whole uh, case about how it was one of the Nordic countries, I think it was reported that Sweden had the highest suicide rates in the world and so on. And one of the responses was, that's be probably because the data capture there may be more accurate than in other countries. So we also have to be... Um, <laughs> I see David's angriness there. So. No, my point honestly is true. We, the, the, index, the indexes have shown that we are supposed to be a less engaged people than uh, Thai people, than Indonesians, etc. And perhaps that is true, but we also must acknowledge that we can't take that too seriously because we don't know the quality of these surveys. Who are they really researching in Thailand, Indonesia versus in Singapore? So I, I wouldn't want to take too much uh, of that into consideration. But there is also a fact we, have to, we do have to recognize, and that is we are a hard-driving people. Uh, if you look at Indonesian and Thai people, there is a lot more to life than work. Uh, for us, work is probably the source of a lot of, of, um, of emotional satisfaction. And that's not necessarily bad. That's partly what took us from third world to first world. In terms of what you talk about in the future, how do young people feel about work? Should we be less hardworking, etc.? Should we have uh, less of, how do we increase the sense of engagement of young Singaporeans? My sense is that we must not make the mistake of thinking that more engagement with work, with your life, um, would mean necessarily 
working less hard. I think working hard is very important. I think a work ethic is important. But what is important that I see today in the millennial generation is not at all what a lot of employers see, which is, oh, they're disengaged, they are lazy, they just want to spend more time doing other things. Not at all. You find that millennials are very hardworking, put in a lot of time of their own, but for things that they believe in. So the onus, I think, is partly on employers to try to engage young people so that they can give of their best. And I think across the board, all employers are trying to see, are having this problem today. How do you engage millennials? Because when you engage young people, they work probably harder than anybody else. But if you don't engage them, they will not work just because of the paycheck. And that's the challenge that, uh, that society has in Singapore, particularly as we become more advanced. I have an interesting question here from the other room, so I'll just read it up before uh, getting back to somebody up there. Um, one question here is, did the content and tone of your speech today change following the passing of Mr. Lee Kuan Yew? <laughs> if so, what was amended? Uh, <laughs> if not, never mind. <laughs> In the spirit of New Singapore, I shall not ask you to give your name, your IC number, and your employer. I've got the name, uh, 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 but never mind, it doesn't matter. <laughs> actually, I think that's, that is actually quite an insightful question, I think. Of course, I changed a part of my talk to, as anyone would, when an important social event has occurred, if you're trying to be relevant, you have to make reference to that event. And so I did that in terms of changing the text. Uh, but to the extent that a large part of this was already written over different plane rides and so on, I think fundamentally the basic messages that I had remained the same. Uh, the three messages as to what I think are the things we need to do to to increase cohesive diversity in our society, to increase social mobility, the, the, the whole notion of, uh, of identity being something you create of your own and that we should just share stories rather than try to define a single Singapore identity. All these things, I think, um, have nothing to do with the passing away of Mr. Lee. But I think it is his passing away and the fact that he has in so many ways created our identity and created Singapore society serves as a very poignant backdrop against which we now talk about identity. So that to me is what suffuses my talk, the awareness that his existence, his life is a backdrop to what we're now talking about rather than that the passing away specifically influence any parts of my talk. Okay, please, um, there's somebody up there. Good evening, Mr. Ho. Yeah, thanks for tonight's lecture. Uh, my question would be, okay, I share your views on, on collaborative governance and, and blurring of racial lines. I think moving ahead, that's the way to go. But having said that, do you think Singapore is ready for a non-Chinese prime minister? We know that one of the hallmarks of our political PAP 
is that they are always going for leadership renewal. And PM Lee is not in particularly good health. He just recovered from a surgery. So moving ahead, do you think that we are ready for a non-Chinese prime minister? And if we are so ready and we do elect and we will have a non-Chinese prime minister, how will this how will this appointment affect us as a country in the international standings? Like how will other countries view us? Especially now we have close ties with China and Taiwan. Was America ready for a black president? The jury is out. But I think the fact that America had a black president, the first time they ever had one, says a lot for that society. I don't know how you measure readiness. Are we ready, meaning if a candidate were to stand and a candidate was really heads and shoulders above another candidate? I actually believe we are ready or will be ready soon. I do not think that the Singapore of tomorrow that I see among my children and their friends are going to differentiate on the basis of race or color. They will be clearly making differentiations on the basis of views and so on. However, I would be also equally, um, I guess, realistic enough to say that if you had two persons of roughly equal caliber and one was Chinese and one was Indian or Malay, who would win? I would say you would have to probably recognize that there are going to be, um, there will be racial affinities. But if a leading party like the PAP were to put up a non-Chinese prime minister, would the country accept? I think yes. Uh, would the party lose its uh, power simply because they had a non-Chinese uh, prime minister? I honestly believe and I hope to be naive enough to believe that if that person was of caliber, um, we would accept. I think we already have a deputy prime minister who is not Chinese, who is extremely popular. That says something. As to whether other countries would have any problems with us, whether China would have problems with us, uh, if we had a non-Chinese prime minister, my question is I wouldn't know, but I certainly would hope that's not going to be the basis for consideration amongst us Singaporeans when we vote a prime minister as to whether our other countries are going to accept it or not. So to me, that's a, that should be a non-factor because we are a sovereign country. We should elect leaders whom we believe in. Yeah, nor is our relationship with China posited on the... Yeah, not, our the relationship with China was yeah. not determined by racial yeah, yeah. Uh, affinity of its leadership. Yeah. Okay, you have one question here and then we'll move to you. Okay, please. Over here. So um, thanks, Mr. Ho, for your very insightful talk so far. Um, I just want to raise a point in terms of schools and race and income. I think the most, the best measure of you know educational outcomes is when people of different races and when people of different income groups are able then to achieve relatively similar educational outcomes in terms of um, percentage of the population. And um, I think that's what we should be striving for. In terms of how many PSC scholars come from RJC, 
and uh, Hua Chong, and in all um, disclosure, I'm from RJC, but it's fine. Um, so, <laughs> so I think the key here is to develop certain institutions that are able to develop people that are world class in what they do. So, for example, developing Hua Chong and RJC into places that are able to develop the, most, the best ministers, able to produce the best leaders, um, certain schools that are then able to produce the best businessmen, perhaps certain polys that are able to you know, um, give us scientists, inventors, and vocational experts, and developing, for example, the ITEs into um, becoming world-class in their own right, in being able to capture the talent of the people that go there. So um, I would say that it, the key here should be, able, should be in bringing people from different demographics and different income groups from different races to each of these um, world-class institutions in equal proportion rather than thinking about how we can get more PSE scholars from the rest of the institutions, for example, that we not be specialising in that particular skill. So that's a suggestion. Thanks. Thank you. Um, I, I may just want to comment here that I'm not so sure we should be so fixated about creating world-class secondary schools and so on because it's not going to be easy to create such world-class institutions and to the extent that Hua Chong and RJC may be world-class, that's great. But if we focus on trying to create world-class institutions, again, it's going to create a handful that are going to be world-class. My own suggestion, for example, is that we should get rid of the gifted educational program and replace it for, by a program which, is, which recognizes special needs of every student. We should create a lot of secondary schools in a geographic area to be a cluster. Each of these secondary schools should be encouraged to develop their own area of excellence. So one school could be particularly strong in, in, in performing arts, another school is strong in sports, another school is strong in, in arts and sciences or something else. And then what we can do is for students within the cluster, those with special needs, which is what I think is part of what gifted program is. Mm -hmm. Gifted program is for special needs, but it's only for the needs of the specially gifted. We should define special needs as those who have special talents and those who have problems like dyslexia or autism. And within this cluster of schools, we do have the financial resources and we may need to spend more, for example, in getting buses to bus people around for their ECAs, so that within each geographic area of Singapore, we have a cluster of schools that have got a totally integrated set of special capabilities so that our students who have special needs or disabilities can fulfill their potential. That to me, if we can do that as a nation, to me that is far better than developing a few institutions of world class. We have developed these institutions of world class to the extent that if you ask some of the Ivy League universities, the greatest number, well, I think it is well known that in one of the Ivy League universities, it is RJC that is, has supplied more undergraduate students than any other high school in the world. So that's very, a very proud fact for the principal of RJC, but is it necessary something that we should continue to do to just create more world-class institutions? I think we should create, we should aim to create a system whereby Truly, we walk the talk, and every student who has a potential to be reached, whether it be in a talent or in a disability to be, to be redressed, will get that special attention. That's something we should be proud of if we can achieve it.
So defining special needs as a whole spectrum. Yes. Okay. Defining yeah. special needs is not special needs is not just for the specially talented. Special needs, by its simple definition, is needs on both sides of the spectrum. Hi, Mr. Ho. Thank you very much for your lecture. I've diligently followed all of your lecture series. Uh, I just wanted to uh, make two points. The first one, actually, on what the lady made earlier. I think the most scary fact that you shared earlier was not that most PSE scholars, at least to myself, came from RJC and Hua Chong, but it's more that more than 50% of them live in private residential properties. You know, so are PSE scholars a real reflection of the general demographic in Singapore? And the second point I wanted to ask your opinion on was the CIMO framework. Right? It permeates almost every form and almost every, a lot of our social policies in Singapore. And yesterday, PM uh, reshuffled his cabinet, and one of the headline-grabbing news was that you know, there are two uh, full Malay ministers in cabinet. I mean, was there of any relevance, actually, that there are two Malay ministers in cabinet, <laughs> as opposed to two very capable men, you know, one capable man being promoted to a full minister? And should we move away from the CIMO framework, which you know, affects housing, affects uh, ability? I mean, the most important, of course, is housing policy. Should we move away from it? Are we confident enough in the Singaporean identity that regardless of race, we can live together as Singaporeans and we don't have to engineer our neighbourhoods so that it's a reflection of the different racial groups, but it's just a reflection of us Singaporeans? Can Thank I you. Um, ask for a clarification? Yeah. Would, if we did, did away with CMIO categories, categories, say, for example, in housing, would you be comfortable if, say, particular races were to congregate in particular blocks of HDP flats? And that'll be fine. I personally wouldn't see a big problem with that. There is I no problem. I would see them as Singaporeans. I think. No, but do you see that as a problem if you had particular races congregating in particular parts of Singapore, blocks of flats, even floors? I do not see it as a problem. Okay. I my comment here is a nuanced one. I do not think it is. It was necessarily bad for the government to indicate that we have now consciously got two Malays in, in cabinet. I think we should blur the CMIO categorization in our own minds and how we define people so that we have a more richness of definition of, of ethnic diversity. But the danger here, which I would clearly not recommend, is that in towards the argument that we should blur CMIO categories, it becomes an excuse for a majority race to no longer be cognizant of the fact that minorities have to be very consciously supported in terms of their presence uh, in cabinets, leadership positions elsewhere, and so on. Because the flip side of blurring CMIO categorization is to say, Race doesn't really matter anymore. So does it really matter that we have Malays in the um, uh, in cabinet? No, it doesn't matter. Does it really matter that we have Malays in, uh, in parliament? It doesn't really matter. And the fact that they're all Chinese, it's okay because after all, race doesn't matter anymore. So there's a flip side and a real danger that we must be very clear about. I believe we must go beyond a a simplistic CMIO model, but that should never be the excuse to be extremely conscious of the need to send signals to 
all minorities in Singapore, not necessarily just CMIO, but of the wider breadth of minorities have in Singapore, that we are truly multiracial and multicultural and we walk the talk. So in that sense, we should not celebrate the Malays. We may celebrate that one was, uh, some, uh, was a Malay from Javanese origin. We may want to celebrate the fact that he's from somewhere else. So it need not be CMIO, but we must always consciously celebrate and actually execute it through our actions, the fact that diversity in Singapore is not just a, a lip service term, but is actually a living reality. So we must make that distinction. Let's not have CMIO in its simplistic form, but let's not let that be an excuse for any government or any people to advocate that racial or minority support is no longer important. I think we must continually have real diversity in leadership and, in, and, and everywhere else. I would like to second that. Uh, it's, 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 it's something that needs to be built, it needs to be worked on endlessly. I don't think we have overcome these problems forever. I'll just give you something that, um, I mean, something which I read recently, um, Minister uh, Mentor Lee Kuan Yew recalling his experience of the 1964 race riots. And he recollected that it was a traumatic experience because he was taken aback, he and his cabinet colleagues were taken aback by the extent to which the relations between people just changed overnight. And he said that it took a long time for people to recover from that trauma. And he gave the example of Malays. He says even as late as 1984, 20 years after the event, he noticed that Malay families were tending to congregate in the same blocks of HDB flats. And if there weren't enough Indian, Malay families on the same block, they tended to congregate on the same floors. Why? Because of the memory of 1964. After 1965, they were now a minority, and they were conscious that if ever there were to be another race riot in Singapore, they would prefer to be with their own kind. So to reverse this kind of trauma is the work not of one lifetime, but of many lifetimes. Let me just give you an example, because I, I, I worry that I may have created a misimpression. When I said that I don't think we should have a CMIO categorization, and I refer to New York, and New York can't be defined as CMIO, but whenever someone of a particular ethnic minority in New York gets to be in a particular position, a lieutenant governor or, or deputy mayor or, or a councillor, all these ethnic minorities are so proud that someone from their own ethnic minority has taken on a leadership position. So I think we must always, we must always preserve and protect the multiracialism that we have, but we must not just limit it to a category of four simplistic classifications. Let me go through the questions very rapidly. I mean, I've got one question here which I haven't read out. Um, this is from the other room. Do you think the Singapore government will relinquish its hold on the political sphere and allow the following? One, fixing of electoral boundaries, whether single member or GRC. Two, scrapping the ISA. And three, sorry, three I don't quite understand. Uh, granting of press media licenses to non-conventional views. I mean, you don't need press licenses to have non-conventional views, but anyway. <laughs> Granting of press media licenses to non-conventional views. That 
is not uh, yeah. but anyway <laughs> I think that question would be very well posed to the next SR Nathan fellow <laughs> um, if that the person who asked that question was in my other lectures <clears throat> I'm feeling like a professor with students who, to say to a student, if you had come to my other lecture, you would have known what I said. Um, actually, I have addressed some of these questions before. I've addressed the question of ISA and so on. Um, if, I, if I may just, I mean, I don't want to sort of like cop out. Um, but frankly, I think the, the honest answer to that is one doesn't really know what the government is going to do. I think what is interesting here is, the, is something that hasn't happened before, at least in the many years ago, is that young people like that can simply ask these questions very easily, and probably if you ask that person for his name or IC number, they'll, they'll, they'll give it very freely. I think the very nature of these questions, the fact that they're asked right, it's kind of an off-the-wall question in a, in a discussion about society and identity, simply indicates that, that civil society is, is alive and well in Singapore. People are asking all kinds of questions. And I'm going to do the typical thing. I'm going to cop out and say, <laughs> ask more of these questions to the next uh, Northern Fellow. We're, we only have about five minutes, so we'll have to gallop through the rest. Uh, would, you've got one. Who's, where are the other questions? Over there, one. Could, yeah, she's already there. Should, could you start first? Yeah. Hi, good then, evening. Yeah. Um, Mr. Ho, you mentioned the importance of strengthening cohesive diversity, especially with the emergence of new sub-ethnic groups. So it seems that going forward, there could be two extremes. Uh, the more optimistic scenario is where we embrace and become more welcoming of diversity and more towards the New York type of model. Uh, but the not so good scenario could be where divisive diversity actually takes over. So my question is, uh, Mr. Ho, which scenario do you think is more likely to happen in the next 50 years? And um, can you elaborate on what's really at stake if the second scenario occurs? Thank you. One of the things my wife said about me in a moment of frustration was that I'm an eternal optimist. Um, nothing can get me down for long. Why was that a moment of frustration? <laughs> <laughs> Some, sometimes she doesn't think I should be so optimistic about everything oh. in life. <laughs> uh, but I am an optimist. And I do truly believe that the direction that Singapore is headed towards through my sense of younger people. And by the way, one of the things I'm absolutely delighted today is that the first Northern Lecture, only my friends came, and they were all over 65. <laughs> by the final Northern Lecture today, I see a lot more younger people yeah. here. Hopefully, some of you have heard from other people that you know, it's not only ODs here talking about things that are relevant to ODs, but relevant to you. And I'm really, truly glad that more young people here are today discussing about things that matter to them. I am totally confident that we are moving towards a more cohesive diversity. The civil society that I see rising out of Singapore today gives me reason for encouragement. What could happen that would derail this and lead to divisive diversity of the kind that I spoke about, frankly, is something that would not arise from the people themselves. I think if we get a government of the day, and I'm not referring to any party, I think that if the situation were to arise in Singapore whereby playing to the basest sentiments of an ethnic group will get you votes and you inflame those sentiments as we have seen in other countries in the world, I think we will get a divisive uh, diversity. But I do not fundamentally believe 
that it is in the inherent nature of people to be so discriminatory towards race or differences. I do believe that people tend to be generally inclusive, but only if their basis instincts are aroused and manipulated, then it will get worse and worse. So essentially, I am very optimistic that the cohesive diversity that I see coming out more and more in Singapore will, will be solidified in the Singapore of the next 50 years. Well, I, we don't have that much time left. Let me see, there's one question over here. Thank you, Mr. Ho, for your uh, <coughs> fascinating series of five lectures. I've also been a loyal follower, and I've been a shoulder for Andrew to cry on whenever he's been too traumatized by you. <laughs> so, Andrew, you owe me a lunch. <coughs> My question is, Mr. Ho, have you, after this series of lecture, lectures, have you given some thought towards con continuing to contribute towards the intellectual landscape in Singapore by deploying your considerable influence towards starting and perhaps supporting a small team that in all honesty and in deference to Mr. Janas can never rival his team at IPS, but a small team that can nonetheless continue to research and communicate on some of the ideas that you've talked about in your lectures? You mean, are you suggesting that he should make me a distinguished fellow <laughs> of the well, IPS? Yeah. Yes, of course. One. I'm kidding. Okay. You see, you see, right. he, you see him. He's he's copping out. He won't answer. Janadas and I have been I thought you wanted to go time. back to watching movies. <laughs> thank you. Hi. Uh, thank you, Mr. Ho. Uh, my name is Karthik. Uh, I'm Singaporean, Indian, heterosexual male, <laughs> civil servant. Hi. I'm here. I don't know whether that makes a difference, but it's just a comment. Uh, I'm not going to steal away the importance of his question, but here goes. Uh, it's, you, the points that you have made in the last five lectures actually resonates with myself and many of my peers. Just my a few comments very quickly on the education system or my education journey in Singapore. Like you highlighted very aptly, I started in the poly as well. And uh, you know, unfortunately I managed to get a master's and doors have opened. But having been overseas and coming back, I find that unconsciously over the years, uh, it built up a certain fear that my grades sometimes speak louder than my, idea, than my ideas. Or, you know, if I don't make the intelligence, the pedigree of the intelligence here in Singapore, whatever that means, I, mo I might be left out and, you know, there is an invisible ceiling somewhere. The comment I'm trying to make is the nudge or the pat, the pat on the back often did not reach the polytechnic and the IT students sometimes. The nudge or the pat on the back, you know, that, that you need, uh, as much as, as for the students from the top schools. There's this quote that, that came out in a movie that, that they say that, does making a soldier a knight make him a better fighter? I think, in, or make him a better soldier, a, be, a better person. I think it does. Because along the way, when you meet a few people who give you that nudge, you're lucky enough to get it, you tend to, you tend to break some barriers. Uh, it's not only about focusing on the, you know, the privileges that are being inherited. I think more importantly is the uh, disadvantages that are being inherited as well. Uh, this, you know, maybe your thoughts on that. That's about it. Thank you. Well, and I totally agree with you that I think everyone needs role models. Uh, those among us here who have not succeeded in the traditional way, but have succeeded in some way despite our own backgrounds, have a responsibility to lead and to inspire other people. That pat on the back, that the, the, the accolades that we give to people who have come from non-traditional backgrounds, the very laudatory series of articles that um, Straits Times has been running on people who have totally non-traditional backgrounds, I think all these add up as a parent, I know how important 
encouragement is to young people. And the, it is so easy to destroy the entire self-confidence of young people because they did not do well early on in life. And it's very difficult to underestimate how a word of encouragement can go so far in making a person feel that they are worth something. So I think it behooves all of you who have done well to really spread the message out to other people you come in contact with. That's more powerful than simply government policies that allow people now from non-privileged backgrounds to be able to, uh, to, uh, to achieve something. We need both. We need an opening of policy, then we need the creation of self-confidence which can only come from mentors. One last question, and then can you ask a question that will allow him to wrap up? <laughs> so I've heard of the HDI and of course the many indexes around the world, but this is the first time I've ever heard of creating a Singapore Social Development Index. What would you think would be the major components of it and what would you think would be the process in creating such a uniquely Singaporean index of where we are and where we want to be in the future? We have to make you a distinguished fellow to answer that question. <laughs> I think that's a very good idea. In case you all didn't hear, I should be made a distinguished fellow. <laughs> I should lead 25 people from IPS. I shall spend $3 million, travel around the world, and then I'll give you the answer. The, the honest answer, of course, is that there's no answer I can give here. We're not, the, the idea I'm suggesting is hardly unique. A lot of, as I mentioned in one of my lectures, Australia has something similar to that. Other countries have been trying to do that. There is no international barometer or indicator of progress that is yet accepted. World Bank has its, every country has its own. We still need to have GDP as a universal index. It's crude, but it's useful in its crudeness. But we need to augment it with other more nuanced and more culturally and nationally specific indicators of national well-being. And I think that's partly, that's really truly something the academic institutions, and I mean this with all seriousness, NUS, SMU, NTU, and the institutes of research can start to propose this and to start to discuss, and gradually we may develop such an index. Thank you, Komping. We've come to the end. Please. <laughs>
we began this series um, of the Northern Fellowship with a provocative speaker. Um, the downside of starting with a provocative speaker is that you can't, the following year, pick a dull one. Uh, <laughs> so it was very difficult to pick someone, uh, to find someone um, who would at least match Kwon Ping in his provocativeness. And there aren't that many people around in Singapore. Um, and I think I found about the only one available. Um, he happens to be a former civil servant, a former firm sec, but fortunately not a former scholar. Um, one of the few firm secs who was not a former uh, a scholar and, um, and, uh, and, and terminally provocative. Uh, his name is Bilahari Kausikan. Uh, <laughs> Um, so he'll be the 2015-2016 SR Nathan Fellow, and he will begin his series of lectures in um, his term as fellow will begin in August this year, the academic year, and it will, like Compings, end in the following academic, uh, following May.